happening, and uh, it's good to be in God's Word. James chapter 5, if you'll please turn there. We're in the home stretch. We're about to wrap up the book of James. Some of you may be thinking, oh, I'm so glad. Move on to something different. Start focusing on Christmas after this. And in James's letter, we've looked at a host of issues that he has talked about to help us live in a lost and fallen world as followers of Jesus. Uh, and it's easy sometimes to forget with all these different issues James has talked about that there's a connecting theme to this letter that he has written originally to Jewish Christians scattered all over the known world by persecution and very applicable to us as Christians today. Uh, and that connecting theme is reflected in the series title up there. It's having a faith that works. You know, it's sort of Paul's emphasis is that we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, but James' emphasis is on the kind of faith that it takes to receive God's grace. There's a certain kind of faith God is looking for, and it's a faith that works, a faith that acts, a faith that does something. It's a faith that makes a difference in how we live as followers of Jesus and how we, how we speak, how we treat others, how we view and handle money, how we deal with hardships, how we plan for tomorrow. It's a faith that makes a difference. And a couple weeks ago we talked about the fact that when we do plan for tomorrow, we plan with humility, acknowledging that we don't really know what the future holds. We're not guaranteed tomorrow so we can't really plan for it in any certain sense. You know, I didn't know 24 hours ago that Tennessee was going to lose like they did to Georgia. I just knew Tennessee was going to win. And who could have guessed earlier this week that the Astros would actually pull it out and win the World Series? Well, I think I know at least one family that knew that was going to happen. But James does instruct us that as we plan for tomorrow, we, we do it trusting in God's will, trusting in God's heart, acknowledging that we're not in control, but He is, we don't know what the future holds, but He does. And He is a good, good Father who only gives us good gifts. And He is a good shepherd who guides and guards the flock, who leads and feeds His sheep. And so it's to this topic that James returns one final time in this letter. How are we to live not only in light of an uncertain future, but how do we live in light of uncertain times today? And forget about it. Like Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. Amen? How do we live in light of the last days? Now, when I titled this sermon, The Last Days, that's not some sort of a cryptic message or some sort of a fatalistic uh, you know, uh, title from a Tennessee fan. You know, that, that's not what I mean by in the last days. James and his readers, they thought they were living in the last days. They were dealing with uncertain times fraught with danger, distress, difficulties. It, it seemed to them as if things couldn't get any worse. Jesus must be coming back soon. That was, that was their feeling and their thoughts. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we kind of feel the same way, don't we? We might have those same thoughts. We live in uncertain times. We're concerned about our own difficulties and potential dangers. We wonder if these are the last days. Well, I can't answer that question for you any more definitively than James could his original readers. Jesus made it abundantly clear that only God the Father knows the day He was going to come back, and He said that He would come like a thief in the night. We heard in our New Testament reading today that He's going to come at an hour we don't expect. 
But I do believe that we are living in the last days. I believe James's readers were also living in the last days. Remember, every day brings us one step closer to the return of Christ. And a day is as a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, God's timing is not our own. His timing is very different from ours. He has a plan, and He's going to work it out patiently and mercifully because He longs everyone to come to repentance. So what are we to do? Well, one thing we're not to do is spend our time trying to figure out God's timetable. Okay, If Jesus, when He was walking this earth, didn't know it, certainly you and I aren't going to know it. Amen? And we're not going to waste our time worrying about the return of Jesus either. Instead, we're going to live every day awaiting His return, praying, even so come, Lord Jesus. We're going to live every day as if it is our last day because even if today isn't the last day for the world, it's the last day for somebody, isn't it? And it may be the last day for you or for me because we aren't promised tomorrow. Our days are numbered. Our lives are brief. And we must live every day to the fullest as if it is our last. So what does that look like? What must we do to live for Christ in uncertain times? How do we live for Jesus in the last days? James gives us three things that we need to have to do that. And we're going to look at that this morning from James chapter 5. Let's begin in verse 7, if you will. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you will not fall under judgment. The first thing that James tells us we have to have, and he's mentioned it several times in these few verses, is patience. We need to have patience. James, just in the verses 7 and 8, gives us that word as a command twice. Twice he commands us to have patience. So you know he really means it. You know this is an urgent command. You know this is something that we desperately need if we're going to live out a faith that works in these last days. But he wants us to have patience with some specific things. So first he tells us we're to have patience with God's timing. We're to have patience with God's timing. This word patience has two dimensions to it. First, the word means to be at peace while awaiting an outcome. Be at peace while awaiting an outcome. It's the same word used in Hebrews 6.15 to describe Abraham. And it says, and so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. So God had given Abraham this great promise and it was decades before Isaac was born. It's 20, 30 years before Isaac would be born. It'd be even longer than that before the fullness of that promise would come. And so Abraham had to wait patiently to obtain the promise. The lesson there for us is we shouldn't worry and fret over how long God is taking to do something. Again, God's timing is not ours. 
We can't force His hand. And anytime we try to speed up God's timetable, it always works out poorly. You see that in the Bible. Anytime somebody tries to get ahead of God, it's not good. So we're to wait with peace for God to work, for God to move. But a second dimension to this word patience, it has the sense of standing firm under provocation or persecution without retaliating, without complaining, without grumbling. So it's not just waiting patiently to receive something, it's, it's standing firm and being patient under persecution without lashing out. I want to draw your attention to a particular word at the very first of that verse. It's the word therefore. Whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, you should always ask what it's there for. Okay, it's a connecting word. And so James is connecting this command about being patient with God's timing to the verses above it. Now look up there at the verses above it. If you remember from last week's message, James is encouraging the poor oppressed Christians who are being treated unjustly by these ungodly wealthy people. And James says God's going to judge them. James says they're going to weep and wail at the coming day of slaughter for them because they have hoarded their wealth and they've mistreated their workers and they've murdered the innocent and they've defrauded people. All of this, they've wasted their wealth on wanton pleasure and so they are going to be judged. So James is telling his readers to be steadfastly patient, to refrain from grumbling and complaining, from fretting and from worrying no matter what anybody says or does to them. And then he gives them a reason. Now, you're going to see this throughout this passage. James gives us this command, and then he gives us a reason for it, a promise, a motivation. So why? Why should we wait patiently for God's justice against those who oppress us? Why should we wait patiently for God's deliverance and for God's work in our lives? Why? Because the Lord is coming. That's what he says that we are to wait patiently until the Lord's coming. That's the promise. Now again, a couple of verses before this, the Lord's coming was a day of slaughter. For the wicked, the Lord's coming is a day of dread. It's a day of reckoning. But for the righteous in Christ, it's a hope for which we patiently wait and long. Christ's return is what enables us to put up with hardships without retaliating, to bear up under suffering without despair, to live in the last days without worry. It's because the Lord is coming. Patience with God's timing really is only possible if we live with that finish line in our sights. That's the only way we can face the hurdles of trials and persecutions as we run the race. We need to be patient with God's timing in the world, in our lives, trusting that deliverance will come, justice will be served, our lives will be made whole in God's timing. We're to be patient with God. But secondly, we're to be patient with ourselves. He tells us that we're to be patient with our growth. Be patient with your growth. Now, James uses a very common agricultural illustration in the Bible. Jesus specifically uses this in Mark chapter 4 where he talks about how the the farmer plants seeds, but he really can't make the rain come. He can't make the sun shine. He can't make the seeds sprout and grow. And so he just has to wait. 
He has to let God and the rain and the sun do their work and, and hidden under the soil that seed begins to sprout and grow. The farmer's job is to wait. Now this word wait that James uses here means to stay where you are in expectation of receiving. To stay where you are. Now is that easy to do sometimes? No. No, we, we, we feel the need to press our way to the head of the line, to, to demand what we think we're due, to, to try and speed things up. We're an impatient people. We want microwave spirituality. We want fast food, uh, God working in our lives. <clears throat> this kind of reminds me of, of the Seinfeld episode about the soup Nazi. Maybe you've seen that, or if not, maybe you've heard that. And, and the story goes that there's this guy there in Manhattan who has a, a restaurant that serves the best soup in the city. I mean, it is just all people line up around the block for this soup. It's that good. But he's got these very particular rules about the way you behave in his restaurant. No cutting line, no speaking out of turn, no making demands or wanting to amend, you know, oh, I want that, but I don't want it with onions, or I want none of that. This isn't a Starbucks where you get to order your Vinny Skinny Latte no cream over ice with cinnamon. Okay, it's plain, it's simple, I want the broccoli and cheese. And if you don't follow his rules, if you're rude, if you speak out of turn, get out of line, you hear the dreaded words, no soup for you and you're banned for life. Now, I'm not saying that God is a soup Nazi. Far from it. What I'm saying is this is the kind of patience we need in our lives. We wait where we are for God to work, for God to move, for God to, to help us to grow. We wait for the fruit to bear forth from our lives. It's an expectant waiting. We don't try to cut corners. We don't try to cheat the process. We don't try to speed it up. We patiently stay in place knowing we'll receive what God has in store for us. And there's a double hope James gives us for this kind of waiting. The first is, he says, the rain is coming. He says, the rain is coming. God is going to send the rain. God is going to bless us with everything we need to grow in grace and become more like Jesus. And because of that, we also know, secondly, the harvest is coming. It's a promise. It's a guarantee from God. Now, farmers in Israel are dependent on two rains. There's the early or autumn rain that comes in October when things are planted, and then there's the late or spring rain that comes in late April, early May, around time for harvest. And without those two rains, the farmer had no hope of raising a good crop. And again, the farmer couldn't make the rain come. All he could do is wait depending on the God who had, who had ordained the timing of these rains. Consider the areas of your life where you need to grow. Things that you're working on in your life. Goals that you're working toward and, and want to accomplish. Maybe it's a financial goal. You want to get out of debt. You want to invest or save more. You want to live on a budget and be a, a better spender of your money. Maybe it's a health goal. You want to lose weight. So you're trying to eat better and get more exercise because you want to look better, you want to feel better. Maybe your goal is to become a better spouse or parent. Maybe it's to overcome some bad habit or sin in your life. Maybe it's just to try to establish a regular daily quiet time with God, whatever it is. 
trust God to be at work in it. Maybe for you it's that you've been a deacon or a Sunday school teacher for so many years. You've been working with teenagers or kids. Or maybe you've been witnessing to somebody that's lost or trying to disciple someone and it just feels like you're not making any headway. It just, it just feels like that you're spinning your wheels. You, you want to see growth. You want to see change. You want to see the fruit of your labor. But it's hard because sometimes we don't see it when we want to. Sometimes it takes years to see the fruit of your labor. That's why we trust God. We wait expectantly. He will send the rain. The harvest will come. Listen, it's, it's been such a blessing to me as pastor here now for 10 years and been here for 21 years to, to be able to look at those teenagers that I just knew back in the day weren't listening to a thing I said. And I just wanted to, you know, bang their heads against the wall because I was banging my head against the wall, you know. But now they're deacons and committee chairs and Sunday school teachers and they're bringing their, their spouses and their children to worship. It took time, <laughs> maybe a little longer for, for some than others, but God sent the rain. God is bringing the harvest, and I'm grateful. But James wants us to understand this is not a passive waiting. This isn't like sitting in the, in the you know, waiting for your oil to get changed, twiddling your thumbs, you know, just, just you know, out looking around, nothing to do. No, this is an act of waiting. It's not passive. There is something for us to do as we wait, and that's what James gets to next. He tells us, strengthen your heart. So as we wait, as we have patience with God's timing, with our growth, there is something we do. It's just like the farmer. The farmer has things he can do. He can't make the rain come, can't make the sunshine, can't make that seed sprout, but he can feed the soil. He can weed the garden. There are things he can do. There are things that we can do to contribute, to partner with God in what he's doing around us. And one of those... And kind of the summation of all of that is this phrase, strengthen your heart. Now that word strengthen, or some translations may say establish, that's what it means. It means to prop up, to establish, to make firm, to reinforce. James really is kind of changing word pictures from this agricultural farmer word picture to that of a city under siege. So picture a city that's under siege and the people inside the walls are propping them up. They're firming them up. I think about the Jews at Masada when the Romans were laying siege and they filled the, the, the walls, were double walled and they were filling the inside of these walls with timber and with sand and everything to reinforce it, to make it harder for them to get in. We are to establish, to strengthen, to prop up, to reinforce our hearts as we face the attacks of our enemies, as we endure trials and temptations in these last days. We must stand firm and strengthen our hearts. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. That's what he says. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Now, I'm going to say more about this a little bit later, but I want you to notice the progression here. First, James just says the Lord is coming. So be patient. But now he's saying the Lord's coming is near. It's not just some far-off, distant concept. It's near. If we picture our hearts as a city under siege, it's easier to reinforce 
to establish and strengthen and prop up those gates and those walls if you know reinforcements are coming, right? Sort of like in, in the Lord of the Rings books or movies by Tolkien. There's two different battles, one at, uh, at Helm's Deep, one at Minas Tirith. And in both of those, the enemy has surrounded the city, the good guys are inside, and they're being attacked. And the walls are coming down, and they just keep retreating further inward, propping up the gates, propping up the walls, making it firm, and they have hope the reinforcements are coming. Gandalf is coming. Aragorn, Aragorn is coming. Reinforcements are coming, and that gives them the hope to stand firm. Well, guess what? Reinforcements are coming. Our king is returning, and that gives us hope to strengthen our hearts and stand firm no matter what the enemy throws our way. Amen? Amen. We are to be patient with God's timing. We are to be patient with ourselves. But then there's a third patience that we are to have that James gives us in verse 9. We are to be patient with each other. Look at verse 9 again. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. James knew that his readers also needed the kind of patience that would enable them to lovingly endure each other's trying, exasperating behavior. Now, none of us know anything about that, right? We don't know what that's like to have to put up with somebody who tries our patience, right? This is one of the reasons that James tells them here, do not grumble, do not complain against each other. Now, the Greek word there literally means to sigh deeply, to groan. You know, parents, it's when your kids do that thing and you just go, ugh. Or kids, your parents tell you to stop doing something and you go, ugh, right? That's literally what that word means. It's that inward groan, that sigh of frustration as we deal with the difficulties of life in a fallen world, as we face what I think will be persecution in the future, we must guard against groaning and frustration about each other. We must fight that. We have to remember, we're all flawed. I'm flawed. You're flawed. I mean, we've been around each other long enough to know this is true. Amen? to know that just as much as I might be exasperated at something someone else is doing, they probably are just as exasperated at me. (laughs) That's true for all of us. Satan wants to divide us. He wants to keep us distracted from the mission. But if we're to withstand his attacks, we can't turn on one another. We have to be patient with each other. Patience. And why? Because the judge stands at the door. Again, notice this progression. The Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. He's at the door. He's now standing at the door. Now, the first two mentions of the Lord's coming are meant to bring us hope, but this one, this is a warning. This one's meant to get our attention. He's warning us not to grumble and complain about each other in frustration. We are to be patient with each other, remembering that Jesus is coming back, and when He does, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He will call us out for how we've treated each other. You might remember that the night He was betrayed, the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus said that we are to love one another as He has loved us, and that this is the way the world would know we belong to Him. 
the way we love and serve and treat each other. So I believe that's one of the things that God will call us out on when we stand before His judgment seat. How did we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? I'll tell you what, I want you and I want for you, I I want us to bear with one another. I want us to be patient with one another. I want us to treat each other with a lot of grace because that's how I want God to treat me. And so we should treat each other the same way. So when you feel that temptation to get a little critical, a little grumpy about a brother or sister in Christ, just remember their family. You ever get a little grumpy about your family? But you love them, right? You've got their back. That's how we should be with each other. Listen, what we share in Christ is far greater than any of our differences. We tend to to major on the minor things that divide us instead of majoring on the major thing that unites us, that we are one in Christ Jesus. And if we humbly recognize our own faults and failings, it's a little bit easier to be patient with each other when we remember that the ground is level at the, before the judgment seat of Christ, it's easier to be patient with each other. Now, James adds a second quality we're to possess. In, in, in addition to having patience with God and ourselves and each other, secondly, we're to have endurance or have perseverance. Now, perseverance and patience, are, they seem kind of similar, but they're different. Let's look again at verses 10 through 11. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, James gives us two examples. The first one is that of the prophets, how they faithfully proclaimed the Lord's name in face of suffering and persecution. And James, with both of these examples, wants us to see three benefits to having perseverance. And the first is the blessings of perseverance. He uses the prophets to illustrate the blessings of perseverance. Now, I just want to turn a few pages back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's sort of like the Hall of Fame of the faithful saints of the Old Testament. And, and he, he talks about you know Abraham and Moses and Samuel and David and, and all of these. But then he gets over here to verse uh, 36. He says, others, so now it's kind of encompassing all those that we don't know their names. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. These prophets of old suffered wrong when they had done no wrong. They were harshly treated for faithfully declaring the Word of God. And we can think of specific people. Moses wandered in the wilderness with a bunch of grumbling, complaining people for 40 years. That had to be torture. Abraham endured patiently for many years. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was thrown into a muddy cistern because he dared to confront the king. Daniel, similarly, was locked up in the lion's den for for, for praying to God. Zechariah sealed his testimony with his blood as he was put to death in the temple. Pastor Kent Hughes highlights James's point about this. 
He says that the, that the point is that the prophets suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because they were doing right. And as these righteous suffered, they did it with class, with brave endurance. And James says that because of their endurance, we count them as blessed. Now, it can be a little hard to see how unjust mistreatment and persecution and suffering can be a blessing. We do all we can to avoid stuff like that, right? But did not Jesus say in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs? He said, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. God blesses those who endure persecution with faith, hope, and love. Those who are steadfast, those whose hearts are established and strengthened, there will be a great reward in heaven for enduring persecution as these prophets of old did. This is one of God's great promises to us. But not only does He point out the blessings of endurance and perseverance, but also the outcomes of it. Now, here's James' second example, the patient endurance of Job. Now, this is an interesting example for persevering under unjust hardship. If you remember the story, Job was a very righteous, faithful man, and he was also very happy and prosperous. And Satan comes along one day to God, and he challenges God says, you know, the only reason Job is faithful is because you've blessed him so, so much. And so God allows Satan to, to tempt him because Satan said, you take away the blessings, he's not going to be faithful to you anymore. And test him, he did. Satan took away his health, his possessions, his family, but he never could take away his faith. And Satan was proven wrong in the end. Now, I'm sure that James's original audience identified with both of these examples because like the prophets, they were doing the right things but suffering punishment for it. And they believed like Job that their suffering was unwarranted. But the thing about this example about Job is Job didn't stoically just take his licks without complaining and grumbling. In fact, most of the book of Job is a back-and-forth argument between Job and his friends about the nature of suffering. His friends think that certainly Job has done something terribly evil to warrant this treatment, and Job says no. He maintains his innocence. And at several points, Job wrestled with the possibility that maybe God wasn't as good or just as he thought he was. Is it possible that God just didn't care? And more than a few times, Job wished that God would kill him or he wished he hadn't even been born. Just listen to Job chapter 6, 11 through 13. He said, What strength do I have that I should continue to hope? What is my future that I should be patient? Is my strength that of stone or my flesh made of bronze? Since I cannot help myself, the hope for success has been banished from me. Doesn't exactly sound like somebody who's waiting in hopeful expectation, does it? We talk about the patience of Job. He, he says, I don't have patience. Did, did James misread the book of Job? Why, why did he use him as an example here? I think he used Job as a counterexample to the prophets. What he's using Job for is to remind us for when we struggle with being patient. 
When we wonder if reinforcements are coming, when we do find ourselves groaning and grumbling about each other, like Job, we're made of clay. We're broken vessels. We have doubts and fears and questions. Our emotions get the best of us, don't they? When we fail to be like the prophets of old, we're more like Job. And God knows this about us. God knows that we're a work in progress. He's not finished with us yet. And God is big enough to handle our questions and our doubts and even our emotions. He can take it. He invites us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He says, come, let's reason together. Our doubts shouldn't drive us from God. They should draw us closer to God as they did for Job. Our doubts shouldn't drive us away from God's Word, but make us want to dig deeper into God's Word and in prayer. Sometimes that is what patience and perseverance looks like. Being patient with God and with our understanding of God. That we're learning more and more about who He is. Strengthening our heart by drawing nearer to Him in worship, in prayer, in His Word. Listen, I know there are people out there that they, they, they struggle with this. They feel stuck in their grief. They feel stuck in their spiritual growth. They feel like they're in a rut, and it's easy to get impatient with yourself. It's easy to get impatient with God. It's easy to be like Job in Job chapter 6. But that's why we need the outcome of this endurance, which is also the source of our endurance, and that is the Lord's compassion and mercy. Look what he says. He says, you have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. By reminding us of Job, by calling us to trust that God has a good purpose in these circumstances we're facing that we don't understand, we are called to have the same kind of patience. And yes, it can be hard. Because we look at the uncertain circumstances around us, we, we look at the, the harsh, unpleasant reality that we're facing and we wonder if the Lord truly had my best interests of heart, at heart, would have He allowed this to happen? These difficulties are so great, how could there possibly be any good that comes from them? Maybe you thought that. Listen, if we let Satan... He will always have us drawing false conclusions about God based on our present circumstances. That's what He tries to do. And that's why we must always be ready to point our hearts to the source and outcome of our endurance, the Lord's compassion and mercy. It's not our wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It's not my ability to work and pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It's God's work on the cross and through His Holy Spirit in my life. It's by His compassion and mercy. It begins and it ends with Jesus. And what better place can we see God's compassion and mercy at work than on the cross of Calvary? Where Jesus Christ hung in our place, suffered the wrath our sins deserved, His bodies were broken that we may be healed and be forgiven and made right with God. As we point to the cross, we have to say to ourselves, God did so much for me there, how can I ever doubt His love for me? 
How can I ever doubt that when I look at the cross of Christ? God did so much for me on the cross of Christ that if He chose to do nothing else in my life, that would still be enough for me to praise Him for eternity. Amen? This is the same attitude that Job eventually came around to have, but it took from chapter 6 to chapter 42. It took a little while. But in Job chapter 42, this was our Old Testament reading. I'm going to read it again because it's just so profound. Job finally replies to the Lord after the Lord kind of gives him a good rebuke, kind of beats him down a little bit over his arrogance and, and, and just sort of the attitude he had developed. And Job says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I heard reports about you. And I love this verse. But now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I reject my words and am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. How awesome is it that the source of our endurance and our hope is the same as the outcome. It's more and more of God's mercy and grace and compassion. His eternal redemptive work to make us more like Jesus. And if you belong to Him, He never stops working on you until that day you stand in His presence in heaven. Even through our trials and our temptations. And speaking of temptations, one final thing very quickly that James mentions. In addition to having patience and perseverance, we're to have personal integrity. There in verse 12, it seems like verse 12 about not letting your yes, you know, letting your yes mean yes, your no mean no. It seems a little out of place, like maybe he's kind of changing the subject all of a sudden. But I think that what James is saying is that as we live in these last days with patience and endurance, our personal integrity will be put to the test. And we will be tempted to lie, to water down the gospel, to swear falsely, to save our own skin. If we're to strengthen our hearts and be like the prophets of old who stood firmly in persecution for speaking the name of the Lord, we also must prove ourselves worthy of what we say. Another way to look at it is this, because God is trustworthy in what He says, we can count on His promises, not because God swore it to us, but because His character proves that His words are true, then we should live our lives in such a way that our character proves our words to be true, that our walking matches our talking, that our practice proves our preaching, that what we say to one another as well as about one another is consistent and dependable. And why? Why should we have personal integrity? Why should it be that people know they can take us at our word, that when we say something, we do it? Why is that so important in living in the last days? One more because. So you won't fall under judgment. James offers here one final reminder that we are living in the last days. The Lord's coming is near. The judge is at the door and we will stand before His judgment seat. The question before you on that day, when you stand before His seat, is what have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Will He recognize you as belonging to Him? When you stand before that throne, will He escort you by His grace into heaven as righteous, or will you be condemned as wicked to spend eternity in hell? And it has nothing to do with how good you are. 
It has nothing to do with how much of the Bible you've read. It has nothing to do with whether you've gotten wed in a baptistry. It has nothing to do with your name is on a church roll. It has everything to do with what you have done with Jesus Christ. Have you brought your life under His Lordship? Have you received by faith His grace, His unmerited favor? Have you confessed and repented of your sins and trusted in Him to save you? And if you have, then the return of the Lord is not a day to dread. It's a cause for hope. It's a cause for celebration. Where will you stand on that day? If you have any question, if you have any doubt about that, I invite you here to come right now and settle it and say, I want to give my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. I want to be in Christ Jesus, saved by God's grace, and live for Him. And today, you can know that when the Lord stands at the door knocking, it's a joyous thing to let Him in. You can live in these last days with patience, with perseverance, and with personal integrity because of what Jesus has done for you. Maybe God is speaking to you in some other way today to unite with this church, to, to come and to pray at this altar and rededicate your life to Him. Maybe you need to confess at some lack of patience. Maybe you need to confess some grumbling and complaining that you've been doing either in your heart or with your mouth. Maybe there's a lack of personal integrity you need to deal with today. This altar is open. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are grateful for Your mercy and Your grace, for Your compassions that are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. And Father, we are so thankful that You know the length of our days and You know the moment that Christ will return and we can trust that You are at work even in hidden unseen ways as the seed under the dirt is sprouting, Father. We can trust that You're working in our lives, You're working in our world, You're working in our country. May we not ever despair, but trust always in Your guiding, caring hand. And Father, whatever You're speaking to our hearts today, whatever You're calling us to do, may we be obedient in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.